Feel free to take a seat. We switched it up and uh, do less songs up front, and I'm just never ready. In talking to uh, a bunch of you, both in between services and before the first, I just asked how, how people were doing, and uh, such a consistent theme was just rushed and hurried and busy, and I can uh, certainly relate to that with you. It was funny, last, uh, last service, I asked Jared, who's doing slides, if he wanted some coffee really quick during the first song. And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. So I went to get him coffee, and then I started talking to like four people, and I almost went to hand it to him, and then I drank it. And I'm like, sorry, man. <laughs> I think I redeemed myself. I, I, I brought you some coffee later. So, and then I had two cups, which was good. I like that on a Sunday. Well, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, if it's your first time, as I mentioned, my name is Landon, and we're just thankful to get to, to gather and, and worship alongside of you. Uh, this morning we'll be in the book of Esther, chapter 9 primarily, uh, and then a little bit in 1 Samuel chapter 7 to continue in the, well, we'll get to the forgetful theme, but rushed and hurried theme. I forgot to put my slides in because Kimberly's gone. And so you're going to have to do something really, really hard today and actually read out of the Bible instead of have, have slides. We'll see if you can do it. Um, so you can use your phone to do that or we have Bibles. If you'd like a Bible, raise your hand. Oh, we have the slides? Wow, Nate's the man. Look at Nate. Oh, it was? Wow, good work. All right. Never mind. You don't have to read the Bible. It'll be on the screen. It's easy. Before, though, we get into Esther chapter 9, a couple of quick announcements. Um, this card should be on your seat, and it just goes over our Christmas uh, schedule from today until next Sunday. And there's a few important things you need to know. So you're here today. That's great. That's easy. On Tuesday, so Christmas Eve, we will be gathering uh, both services together, which will just be a fun opportunity to have everyone together for those of you that don't ever get to, to cross paths. Um, so we're looking forward to that at 5.30 p.m. on Tuesday, one gathering. It'll be a candlelight service uh, and really looking forward to celebrating, remembering, commemorating uh, who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, and, and what he will do together. We, since we only have one service, we're looking for a few more volunteers. I would love to free Whitney up. Whitney works so hard in our kids. And so I think we need two or three more volunteers in our kids uh, during that service on Tuesday evening. Um, and if you never served, that's okay. She's got training and background checks, and she'll be in the classroom with you. Uh, so if you would consider that and go into the Our Kids lobby, uh, where the Our Kids sign is, I would really appreciate your help, and I know Whitney would. Lastly, on this card is December 29th, so a week from today. We often say the church is a people who and not a place where. And so what we do in this room on a Sunday is not church. You don't go to church, but rather we are the church. Uh, in here today, we are the church as we follow Jesus and the everyday stuff of life and our vocations with our families and all of life. You are the church. And one of the themes I, I continue to hear throughout December, if you're in a community, is that communities have had no time uh, to gather together through December. It's just a challenging, busy, hurried season to do so. And so we're creating intentional time for you to gather as communities next Sunday. We will not be meeting in this room. So if that's your plan, we need some new plans and we'll help you with that. We're going to be gathering as communities during this time instead. And so if you're a community leader, after the gathering, Toby will be with that white table uh, 
is in the back, and we have bags, a guide that'll walk you through how to just be the church together on that Sunday. It'll walk you through reflection through Colossians 3 as you look back at 2019, and then ways we can look forward to 2020 as we seek to, to follow Jesus together. There's elements to take communion, uh, and so I think it'll be a really rich, good, and healthy time. If you're not a member of a community, you can still partake. So if you're a leader of a family, feel free to, to go take a bag, a guide, and the communion elements. Toby will answer any questions you have, or even if you're an individual, uh, it'll work for you as well. And so if you're a community leader, after the, the gathering, go get it. If you're just in a community but you're not the leader, your leader will take care of it. Otherwise, if you lead a family or you want to uh, partake by yourself, please feel free to go after the service so that you're not alone in here without donuts, coffee, or people next Sunday because that's not good. Okay, I think that's everything. Esther chapter 9. One of the themes that we'll be discussing this morning is this theme of forgetfulness. It, it was funny, in between uh, gatherings, I went to, uh, I, I forgot a lot of things. It's kind of sad. It's a little bit scary. I walked out of these doors when we got done, and I'm like, what should I be doing right now? I'm like, oh, yeah, I have kids running around here. I should probably see where they are. And then about 15 minutes later, I walked into the our kids' lobby to ask somebody something, and I just sat there for like a full two minutes trying to remember. And finally, I did, so that's good. But I don't know if you ever think about this, this concept of forgetfulness. And obviously, there's, there's medical reasons, aging, different things that maybe are outside of our control for why people lose memory, are forgetful, whatever it might be. But I think there's also circumstances within our control that lead to forgetfulness. Perhaps just how we prioritize. If you change your hierarchy of priorities, eventually you'll for forget things that are on the, the lower end so that you can remember things that are on the higher end of your priorities. I think busyness is a big one. Many of you are so busy, it's impossible to remember all the different things, how many bills you have to pay, how many places you have to be, maybe how many kids you have to watch, whatever it might be. And I think if we kind of ponder and consider it, we could agree that forgetfulness, carelessness, and a lack of devotion, of being devoted to a person in a relationship, those things are relational killers. And any relationships you have, if there's a lack of devotion, if there's forgetfulness or carelessness, that's, that's going to really harm the relationship. And that's, that's the case when we consider our relationship with God as well. And so as we enter into our discussion through Esther this morning, what, what I want us to think about is this, how quick we and the people of God and, and Esther and throughout the scriptures are as well, how quick we are to forget that God is good, he is in control, and he's loving. This, this book really tells two stories, <clears throat> the scriptures. On one hand, they tell us that God is good, he's in control, and he's loving. And on the other hand, they tell us how quick we are to forget that God is good, he's in control, and he's loving. And both of those parts are really intentional in the scriptures. The account of Esther begins and is the story of a, of a little girl named Esther who is an orphan. Her parents have died. She and her family and her, her, her country, her nation, have been forced into a culture, into a new nation where they're not welcomed. 
It's, it's fraught with racism, so much so that even though her parents are dead, she can't embrace them physically, but she can't even embrace her heritage, her culture of her family, because if anybody knows that she's Jewish, that actually might put her life at risk. It's a pretty broken space that Esther lives in. Esther grows up, and, and the scriptures tell us that she's a, a beautiful woman, but that ends up being potentially an issue as well, because though we might think of, or like to think, that the account of Esther is this glamorous story of a beauty pageant, it's not. It's actually a pretty horrific, dehumanizing account of a, of a sex contest for the king to find his new queen. And really the only thing that matters in this account, at the beginning at least, is who brings the most pleasure to the king. That's what matters. And this is the place, the space, where Esther is raised without parents. But through this brokenness, what we see is that in this book, all ten chapters, God's name is not mentioned one time. It's not written. There's no trace of it. And that's intentional by the author to show even where his name is not written or known or worshipped or he is not followed, his hand is still guiding the process. What we see is that Esther is going to receive favor of all kinds. As she enters into the palace, she's taken there and forced there, she receives favor from all of the king's servants. She becomes their favorite and they do whatever they can to help her. Eventually, the same will be true of the king. He receives her favor, excuse me, she receives his favor and he's going to look out for her in time. Eventually, though, things get to an even worse place. There's a literal date set by an enemy of the Jewish people for the genocide, for the destruction, for the annihilation of every man, woman, and child that is Jewish. A literal date is set when they as a nation in this area will be murdered and wiped out. And go, that's about as low as it can get. And it's in that moment, in that space at that time, that God steps up. Throughout the series, one of the things we've discussed is this idea that when things are hard, sometimes God allows that to happen intentionally. Because if it doesn't get hard enough, if it doesn't get to the point where we go, there's no way I can handle this, there's nothing I can do in this moment, it can only be an act of God, we will be really quick to forget that God was the one saving and we'll try to take credit for ourselves. What we see in the book of Esther, though, is that God clearly provides for the people. He saves them. And in the worst of the worst circumstances, he rises up even where his name is not known and provides. And, and the story's all but over in chapter 9. And I read this last week, but I want to read again the account of what they do after this victory, beginning in verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate. It's a really fascinating concept. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month Adar every year. Because during those days, the Jews got rid of their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written them to do. 
For Haman, son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pur, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. When he cast this lot, he cast lots to go and acknowledge his gods and determine what day, what date should be set for this mass genocide. He cast the pur, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. Verse 25. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word pure. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants and all who joined with them, to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days, each and every year, according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. It's a really fascinating set of verses right there because they emphasize their potential to forget what God had done and the ways God had provided almost five times. Let me reread this. The Jews bound themselves. That's a strong word. Their descendants, not just themselves, but their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate because they knew it was likely, if they were not intentional, they would fail to celebrate these two days. Verse 28, these days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. That word fade is a subtly powerful word. It's slow but significant. They wouldn't forget right away, but slowly the memory of what God did would fade. If you were with us last week, I talked about two illusions that Satan will put before us, that he will put in our vision and perspective to draw us away from the truth about God. And I want to recap those and read a couple of the, the quotes I read last week. The, the first illusion is this, that we forget God is good and that he wants what's best for us. The first illusion that Satan will present before us is to forget that God is good and that he wants what is best for us. This illusion will present itself, or Satan will present it, especially in times when the circumstances are hard and broken, and it's challenging to actually believe God is good. And on that, I read last week what Paul Tripp wrote about circumstances. I think it's, it's important, and it's hard to actually ponder this in our hearts. He says this, when God chooses something to enter your experience that you would have never planned for yourself, something that's hard and difficult, when the unexpected and unwanted and the unplanned enters your door, how do you respond? Do you question the goodness of God? Do you question his presence? Do you look over the fence and envy somebody's life? Or do you say, you are Lord. You can lead me anywhere you want to have me. My rest is not in my circumstances. My rest is in you. How are you responding to the hard call of God? Think about those, those words for just a second. Think about what it, what it actually means to say, you are Lord. You can lead me anywhere you want. That's a significant amount of trust. You are Lord. You can lead me wherever you want. 
in good circumstances and bad ones to trust that he is good, he's in control, and he's loving. The second illusion is, is almost the inverse of this. The second illusion is that we forget God when we believe, A, we are in control, or B, we are responsible for our successes. Tim Keller uh, wrote on this and paints the picture in a helpful way. He calls pride a kind of cosmic plagiarism. Pride looks at the things in life and says, yep, I am the author of that. When in reality, God and God alone is ultimately responsible. God created us, God sustains us in being, God gave us our smarts, our ability to reason, and our families. He chose our country and century. All of it is a pure gift from God. Pride overlooks all of this and says, no, it's all me. I'm the author, I built this, I deserve it. That's tempting when things go well, when we think we've worked hard and we've earned, and, and maybe you have worked hard, you probably have, and you probably have uh, gifting and skill sets, but what we often do is we forget that God gave that gifting, that God placed you where you're at. You were born where you were born. You didn't choose any of that. And so even what we've worked for, we only had the opportunity to work for because we were given the opportunity. There's this emphasis on commemoration, on rejoicing, on celebrating, on remembering what happened in Esther because they knew they were prone to forget in the same way that we are a forgetful people. Commemoration is something that, that God established frequently for his people because he knew that they were forgetful. And it's all very purposeful. We see this in the, the Jewish calendar and with Jewish holidays. Uh, I'm going to list just a few, but the first is Passover. Passover is a holiday that is much more than just a break from work or rest. It is intentional to tell a story from one generation to the next that there was a time when this family, when this nation... That, that was born of God, that was blessed through Abraham, was in slavery in Egypt. And it wasn't until God came into the picture and provided, saved, and redeemed that they were brought out of this oppression and slavery. And so every year when Passover comes about, it's a remembrance, a commemoration of what God has done so they would not forget. The Feast of Booths is similar. It remembers the days that they wandered in the desert after God had provided for them, when they had no food and they had no water, when they lived in tents, when enemies attacked, but time after time after time, God provided. And so once a year at the Feast of Booths, the Jewish people will actually leave their homes, build a tent as the commandment in the scriptures, and then live in a tent for a full week. Like, that would get you to remember. Your kids would go, why are we doing this? Because there was a time when this was our only option. When we were in a lowly place, we had no food, enemies attacked, we lived in tents, but even in that moment, God provided. It tells a story so that generation after generation would not be quick to forget, to let the memory of what it is that God had done fade. Because we're a quick to forget people. This holiday that's established as a result of what happens in the account of Esther is the same. Purim's going to celebrate, going to remember what happened. And that even where his name is not written or known, God's hand is guiding every step of the way through the good circumstances and the bad circumstances. He will provide, but he's going to provide in his timing and in his way. He might let it go just long enough so that we have no hope, 
so we can know our only hope is in his name, not in our deliverance. Commemoration is, is something that wasn't just for Jewish holidays, but also individuals and, and smaller scale stories as well. If you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read beginning in verse 2. And the context of this is that God had already provided. He'd saved this nation out of Egypt, and they've, they've been in the promised land. But as you might expect, they've already forgotten who God is and what he's done, that he's good, he's in control, and he's loving. They've walked away from him forgetfully. Verse 2 says this, Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to kiriath Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. We receive a lot of context. So they had lost a big battle, a significant battle, 20 years ago. And then it says, then the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. So they were not seeking the Lord. They had forgot him. They were walking in his own ways, in their own ways, pursuing other gods. But now they're returning. Samuel says this in verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths that are among you. Dedicate yourselves, devote yourselves to the Lord, and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths and only worshipped the Lord. Verse 5. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged or led the Israelites at Mizpah. This seems good. After, after 20 years of forgetting and really generations of forgetting who God is, that he's good and control and loving, they remember, so they repent, they start worshiping and following God once again. And then something interesting happens that we don't want to hear, but that we should expect. We read this in verse 7. Right after they do something good, they choose to follow God again. They repent and they worship him. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. As soon as they repent, as soon as they start to follow God to do the right thing, to say, you alone are God and we're worshiping you, they are attacked. And this is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. I will provide for you. I will save. But in his timing and his way, which is often hard for us to deal with. But in moments when you're following God, when Jesus is the only one you worship, in moments of confession and repentance, we should expect to be attacked. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Because Satan hates you. Satan's going to present these illusions before you. And it would be tempting in that moment to once again forget that God is good and control and loving. But look at what they do. They, they get it right in verse 8. The Israelites said to Samuel, I love this, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines drew near to fight against 
Israel. So it's interesting. We can expect to be attacked. But then I love what their response is. This is the second thing we should take away from this account. They say, do not stop crying out to the Lord for us. Not just cry out to the Lord, but do not stop. Because again, we don't know the timing or the way in which God will provide. He will, but we don't know when or how. And so they say, do not stop. You've cried out for us to the Lord. You cry out to the God in circumstances that that are hard or are good, and do not stop. I love that picture. We can expect to be attacked and do not stop. Because again, we don't know the moment when God will say, okay, here I am. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines drew near to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they fled before Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place below beth When God saved and redeemed the people of Israel out of Egypt, and you might remember the, the account of the ten plagues that, that took place in Egypt, they weren't just random things that God did. God was showing that the gods of Egypt were not the gods in charge. He was directly contradicting, based on nature, the names of those gods and what they were considered to be gods of. And something similar happens here. The author, when he says that the Lord thundered, is directly contrasting the gods that the Israelites had previously been worshiping, the the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and a god named Dagnon, was considered to be the god or the gods of the storms. And so when we read that the Lord thundered, there's not just like this random coincidence that happens and, yay, Israel gets a victory. What's happening is God is the main character. And he's putting on display that there are no other gods. I alone am in control. I am alone good. And I am alone loving. There are other gods that will have an an appearance for a time of being in control. That's what we see in Esther. The enemy of the Jewish people has all the power, control, wealth, and influence for a time. There are other good, or other gods that will seem good for a time. But what God shows here when he thunders, he says, I am alone the God of the storm. I am alone the God that is truly in control, truly good, and truly loving. Verse 12. Afterwards, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, explaining, the Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand, whether his name's written and known or not, the Lord's hand, in this case it's written, and Esther it's not, either way he's in control. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. When they repent and they worship God, what happens? They're attacked. But what do they do? They do not give up crying out to the Lord. And then they don't stop there. Maybe, maybe we've experienced that. Hardship, victories, whatever it is, we cry out to God and he delivers. I think often we stop there, though. 
but, but look at what happens in verse 12. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright at the place where this happened. He builds a monument and a memorial so that when they traveled across this place, they would see the stone, they would know that it was called Ebenezer, and they would remember, thus far the Lord has helped us. They would remember that in this spot where this stone is, we had victory, not because of ourselves, because they could be quick to forget that it was God that provided but because God showed up at the timing when they needed it most and his timing when they did not give up crying out to him to hear. We don't do that in our culture, in our moment. Like, do we have anything physical that you walk by and you see and you remember? There's a commemoration that at this point in my life, at this time, when I went through this thing, God provided. I, I think what happens is our memories fade really quickly. And all of a sudden, there's kind of this blur and I can go, wow, I got myself here. I went to school. I put in the hours. I worked hard. I did this. I did that. I took those risks. Whatever it is, and we rewrite the story to say I'm the author of what is good. Or maybe if it's bad, we go, God's the author of that. I had no role to play. We're quick to forget. Therefore, we're really prone, right? We don't, we don't, we don't commemorate. We don't celebrate. We don't have physical objects that we go, this time, this place, this date, this thing, God provided it's interesting, the last two chapters, one and a half to two chapters of the book of Esther, the story's already over. The plot's taken care of. What's happened has happened. But there's one and a half to two full chapters just saying, do not forget to celebrate, commemorate. Every year celebrate this because if you don't, the memory will fade. You'll forget who God is, what he has done, and that he is with us. So that brings up the, the question for us. Again, what causes that forgetfulness? I think there's different things. We've talked about priorities, busyness. There's various circumstances and reasons. One that really sticks out to me, though, is opportunity, opportunities. I was reading a book called The Burnout Society, and, and in this book, it kind of traces our mental approach throughout human history from the first human to where we're at today. And up until very recently, we functioned in, in what the book would refer to as an immunological society, meaning we're a society that has to defend against something invading. Maybe that's a, another country, an army, or a war, and so we prepare a defense against invaders. Maybe that's against sickness, an infection, a virus, whatever it might be, and so we defend, our immune system defends for us. And to a degree, we still have to do that. For instance, today my, my son is sick. And so we have to defend. His body's trying to defend against that sickness. But we can go to the doctor and get an antibiotic so that he can get better. Like that's not, death is not, it happens. But it's not on the forefront of our minds. War is not on the forefront of our minds all the time. What is, though, is opportunity. The premise this book makes is that what we need to defend against now, and we have no clue how to do it, because for the entire course of human history, we fought against bad things. What we actually have to defend against now as individuals and families is good things, are good things. 
And that's kind of confusing at first, but, but take this analogy for a moment. How many families that you know of can relate to this story where the husband or the wife has this career trajectory and there's so many opportunities because of gifting or resources or whatever it might be. And they just wait to get to the next thing because then I can get to this point in my career or this education or this, this whatever it is. And they push and they push because there's great opportunities and they're real and they're good. And eventually the family's left with nothing because all that mattered was the push and the opportunities. It's, it's interesting that in our American culture with the American dream, from literally the moment a child is born, they are groomed and preached to and told, go meet your potential. Who knows what you're capable of? You got to go out there and get it. If you work hard enough, it will happen. And the goal that we're told to pursue is that potential. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, if you walk through Target and you look at baby clothes, the boys' clothes are going to have a football, baseball, or basketball, and it's going to say MVP. And it's subtle, but it says, here's your job. Here's the hope, is that you can go be the MVP. And it's kind of funny and cute, but at the same time, it says, this is what we pursue. This is what we value. Go meet your potential. And the girls' clothes have princesses and other aspirations, right? Like, before they can even think in that way, we put clothes on them that say, go be this. You can reach your potential. The resources are there. The opportunities in our time are endless through the globalization and technology and just our cultural moments. It's fascinating, though, if you look at the rates in which depression is increasing, suicide is increasing, mass shootings are increasing. And one of the connections this book, The Burnout Society, makes is that we're actually all failures culturally. From the moment you're born, you're told, go meet your potential. But if we look at all the opportunities around us, not one of us will ever get close to our potential. Not even close. At some point, you have to let go and fail, and it goes against what we've been taught and the clothes we've worn since we were a baby. So we actually have to defend for the sake of our families, ourselves, human flourishing, being human the way we were made to be and designed to be by God against opportunity. And we've never had to defend against opportunity until recently, until this cultural moment. And it's burning people out. It's killing people, literally. It's depressing. We can't get there. There's never enough. You can never do enough or be enough or get far enough. So I think in the midst of that opportunity, this grind, this going, this pursuit, when God provides, when he does something good that's worthy of celebration, we might celebrate for a quick moment and then we're on to the next opportunity. When he gets us through something broken and brutal, we might go, thank you. We don't build the monument. We don't celebrate. We don't remember the next year. We're looking at the next opportunity. I think culturally we're missing something because we're so consumed with our opportunities and ourselves and building our American dream and moments and palaces in whatever form they take place. But the memory of what God has done fades often, fades quickly, and we forget that he's the one that provided and got us through. Chelsea, my, my wife and I were in uh, New York City a few months ago and we were walking one night just having a good time together and I heard this, this sound and it was, it was rhythmic and, and pulsing and got my attention because it wasn't familiar but it was distant and so I was curious and, and we kept walking 
uh, a block, and then it got a little bit louder, and then another block, and then we entered this park, and there's trees all over and grass, and it's beautiful, right in the middle of New York City. And we keep walking, and the sound now has turned into this, this roar and this rush and this power, and you couldn't ignore it. And I was like, what is this? This is weird. And we keep walking, and eventually I, I get to the, the spot where the sound is being created, and then I knew what it was. It was the, the 9-11 memorial. And there's this description I, I pulled off of their website. Here's what it, it says about it. It's a tribute to the past and a place of hope for the future. The 9-11 Memorial Plaza is alive with twin spirits of remembrance and renewal. The eight-acre park is a supremely contemplative sanctuary composed of a grove of nearly 400 white oak trees and the largest man-made waterfalls, that's the sound I heard, in the United States. Set within the footprints of the original Twin Towers, each pool is approximately one acre in size. That's massive. The names of every person who perished in the terror attacks in Fe of February 26, 1993, and September 11, 2001 are honored in bronze around the Twin Memorial Pools. But if, you can't, like, if you've not seen it, walk up to it and have your breath taken away. It's powerful. And actually, it drew me in without looking for it from a couple blocks away. Like, that's how significant this memorial and monument is. And very, very worthily of it, right? Like, it's worthy to still mourn what happened. And it's worthy to, to celebrate the heroes who saved many lives that day. But it's interesting to wonder, do we have anything about, anything like that, about the God who left his throne to take his form as a man to give up his life on a cross for us. Sure, we have this whole Christmas thing, but I kind of feel like it's just like sprinkled with some Jesus, realistically. Like, does it actually commemorate? Is it something that draws you from far away, from blocks away to go, this is what God has done? Or can you kind of just walk by it on the 25th and then we have the 26th? It's interesting. I think culturally we've lost the art of commemoration, of rejoicing, of celebrating. I, I was reading a part of a book someone gave me this week, and it painted this picture. It told a true story of this couple who for every single year they had been married, every anniversary they planted a new tree. And eventually they had a 40-tree forest in their backyard. And I thought to myself, that is, that's pretty cool. And what I actually pictured funnily enough, is being in the midst of a, a little fight, a, a controversy, whatever, with Chelsea, with kids running around like crazy, and being in one of those moments where you're like, and I just said a bunch of words I shouldn't say. How are we going to do this? How do you get through? This doesn't make sense. And then you look out, and you see 40 trees, and you go, you know what? For every one of those trees, like, there's some scars. There's some brokenness. There's some trials. There's some celebrations, and we got through each year. And you'd look out your, your back door or the windows or whatever it is, or people drive by, and you go like, we made it. There was something worthy of celebration. There was something worthy of fighting for. There was something worthy of love, and it happened. That would be an encouragement, a physical sign in that moment to go, let's keep going. That's, that's pretty cool. We don't have anything like that that I know of. There's a, uh, a community of churches, a group of churches called SOMA, and they, they do writing and, and some helpful things for communities. They say this about celebration, and I think it's, it's appropriate for today. 
think. Oh, cool. If we truly understand and believe the gospel, we should be the most celebratory people on the planet. God regularly called his people to celebrate through feasts and parties because he did not want them to forget his grace and abundant provision. Their celebration wasn't just a response. It was also a demonstration of what God is like and has done. We must enter into a regular rhythm of celebrating God's extravagant blessings. Back to Esther 9, 28. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Again, that's a subtle but powerful word. Their memory will not fade. They were called to be storytellers, to tell the story of what happened with Esther and through Esther when, when God's hand was at work, even though his name was not known, from one generation to the next so that the memory would not fade. And as I think about Christmas coming about, there's a difference between Purim and Esther and Christmas. Purim's going to celebrate what happened, and rightfully so. There's a command to do that. Christmas, though, celebrates not only what happened, but what is happening and what will happen. Matthew 1, 22 through 23 quotes a, a prophet from the Old Testament saying that a child would be born and his name, oh, we have it, great. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. It's funny, as I was reflecting this week on, on Christmas and the Christmases I've had in the past, all I hear about, think about, sing about is baby Jesus. Like there were some shepherds and some wise men and a star in the sky and this baby born in a manger and a silent night. And that's cool. That's great. But it's interesting. We stop there with what happened. And that's good. But, but Christmas is not merely about celebrating the first breath that Jesus took, it's about celebrating that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that he is still breathing and alive and well and conquered death, sin, and Satan. And so whatever we're going through in this moment, good or bad, he is with us. It's not about the first breath, it's that he's still breathing. As we commemorate and celebrate Christmas, it's not about the first cry that Jesus took in that manger when he was born. It's about the last cry as he hung on a cross and said, it is finished. I think so often when we celebrate Christmas, which is good, we celebrate baby Jesus, which we should. It's his birth. But his birth was not the end of the story. The story's not ended. Jesus is with us today, and he's coming again to return as king. What would it, what would it look like this Christmas season if we actually considered commemorating what happened with your kids, with your family, with your friends, whoever it is, if as we celebrate Christmas, we don't just talk about Jesus being born, what if we commemorated what happened this year? Maybe you're in the midst of something that he will provide for in his timing and in his way. What if, what if you build a 40-tree forest in your backyard that said, at that time, at that date, in this place, Jesus led us through that 
Maybe you hire an artist to do a painting of a certain moment or season in your marriage or this or that. God provided health. A miracle happened and you go, people walk into the living room or family room and they see it. I go, where did you get that? Glad you asked. Let me tell you the story. That's when God provided then. We know he'll provide again. I think we've lost the art of commemorating. We're We're forgetful people. We let what God has done fade. I think we're called to something greater than that. May we be a a people that celebrate well because of all people, we have the most to celebrate. And we build our own Ebenezer, our own tribute, our own monument to walk by every morning, whatever it is, to celebrate Christmas and go, because Jesus was born, because he's still breathing, because he cried out, it is finished, he is still with us. We still cry out Emmanuel and recognize whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, he is with us now. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are still with us. I pray that you would overwhelm us with your goodness with your love and with your mercy. Protect us from the illusions that Satan wants to put before us. I pray for each person in this room, God, that you would truly overwhelm. Overwhelm them with the knowledge of you, of your love, that you are in control and that you are good. In the the darkest and deepest of the broken moments, when we can't take it anymore, help us to know that you've, you've brought us to that place so that we won't try to take credit. So that in the next round, we will know you will be faithful no matter what happens. And in the good moments, help us to give credit where credit is due. Thank you that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lowly Until the Son of God appears. So rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel 
shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive That mourns in lonely exile here Until the Son of God appears So rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. It's rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O As we continue to worship, we respond in worship uh, three times, or in three ways, every, uh, every week. The first is through reflection, and so through the next couple songs, and as we wrap up our time together in this gathering, I'd encourage you to reflect on, on the fact that, that Jesus is with us, and what are the ways that you can commemorate how he is working in your life today, this year, and celebrate that together so that we don't forget and let our memory of what he has done, not what we have done, but what he has done fade. Take the next few moments to reflect. We also take communion each week. And as we take communion this, this Sunday, as you take the bread and dip it into the cup, and whether you take it individually or maybe with your family or your community, Jesus says to do this in remembrance of me. And today as we take communion, we are remembering that he indeed is still Emmanuel. He is still with us. And so wherever you're at in your journey, he is with you as we consume the bread and the cup. Know that. And then lastly, we respond by, by giving, by recognizing that this is his story, that the opportunities we've had, our, our vocations, our careers, our finances are all because of what he's allowed to happen. And so we give back to him of the first fruits to say that you are indeed God and I am not. And so part of our worship is to give back. And so if you'd like to give online, there's instructions on how to do so in the, the chair in front of you in a little brown card, or there's two boxes for giving in the, the back of the room. And that's a part of our worship and our response. Let's continue to worship in our response now.